Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma farers, O children of the Noble Ones, most excellent assembly of medium sized beings. <laughs> Gotta get that in one more time. <laughs> I was just doing some walking meditation, sharing the upper walking room. I snuck in there and I had the thought, well, someday I won't be able to do walking meditation anymore. Lose my legs one way or another. That's fine, seemed to be fine. I didn't notice I was, that wasn't a problem in my mind, but, but I would miss it. So do your walking meditation while you can, friends, before maybe you lose your legs somehow. Sooner or later, they'll stop working. May it be a long time from now. The other night I was uh, going down to where I stay uh, home while I'm here this year down on the far side of the pond. And, and as I was just coming into the, to the driveway, this was late after the chanting, um, a shape, a white light colored shape flew across in front of me, an owl flew across. And it was, uh, for me, um, that's a gift. And it's such a fine thing to see the owl it was probably a barred owl. There's lots of barred owls around. And they were around a lot in the first, in part one, especially I heard them calling so much. Did, some of you must have heard them. They were very close sometimes, the closest I've ever heard them. And their call is so wild. And they stay, seem to stay through the winter many years. I hear them right in the middle of winter. And they're, when the, Somehow the conditions, the calls seem to echo through the woods. And I was so happy and felt so blessed to see the owl. And, but also I felt my heart break a little bit. Often I've been here in, in the springtime, late May, early June. For many years I was, uh, Rebecca and I were here and we would, helping to teach a retreat at that time. And I would always walk to the farm, you know, where the cows are. If you go, you know where it is. <laughs> and uh, I like to walk up there. And also in the spring then, I like to see when the swallows come, the barn swallows come. But lately I've been having this fear that if I'm here then and I go that that they won't be there, that I won't see them, that they won't come back. You know, in meetings with, with so many of you, uh, a number of you have reported on how, uh, how important it has been to be able to be outside here and walking in the woods and spending time practicing in the surroundings here, which are so um, beautiful. 
And there's this direct teaching that I and many of you have expressed this direct teaching from from the trees and from what we, we tend to say nature out there. You know, there's this beauty, feelings of harmony. Sometimes it brings forth or connects us to a deep kind of silence or stillness to be in the woods. And I feel for myself that the trees and plants and being out away from buildings and the things of humans is a blessing and it's always teaching us the Dhamma out there constantly if we pay attention, but it's teaching at a maybe a different pace <laughs> slower pace and it feels so good sometimes to walk in the woods or walk the loop and and open the uh, senses to the fields and the space and the air and the light and even with the early onset of winter this year and it feels so so beautiful and peaceful and it's it's very supportive as i said opening and connecting in these surroundings and and yet sometimes we we can not see a, a bigger picture of things because of how beautiful and kind of idyllic it can feel at times you know and we walk in the woods and we'll see a deer or a porcupine and we'll see the birds and the squirrels at the feeder and it's such an important thing for us to have these beings here as part of our retreat, at least for me it always is so much. In the last half a century, at least here in this country, there's been a a dramatic, a tragic decline in the number of songbirds. Most songbirds, <clears throat> the numbers are down, not just kind of rare ones that may have thought there would be fewer of them around, but but common ones. I saw an article, it's over 10 years old, from 2007 now, a list from the Audubon Society of 20 fairly common birds whose populations have declined by at least 54% since 1967. And I'm not gonna read that list, but I wanna mention a couple of of birds that are on that list because they're, they're common, they're visitors, frequent visitors to my yard when I go home and they're my, they're particular friends. So evening grosbeaks, sometimes I'll get 35 or 40 of them at once in the yard. They range, they live in the mountains of the west and all the way across to the northern parts of the east coast. They come to New England once in a while. You know, someone's been drawing birds on the, on the menus. And you can tell if you know your birds, which ones they are. The evening grosbeaks were on there once. (laughs) But their population is down by almost 78% in the last 50 years. And Rufus hummingbirds, we get them in my house and I have hummingbird feeders and they're tiny and they're like little jewels, flying jewels. They're very feisty beasts. They spend most of their time chasing one another, it seems. <laughs> their population is down by 58% in this country. It's mostly from habitat loss, these 
these declines. It's almost 170 years ago, a Henry David Thoreau said, in wildness is the preservation of the world. And in his book, Walden, was published in 1854. I'll read a little bit, just one passage from that. We need the tonic of wildness to wade sometimes in marshes where the bittern and the meadow hen lurk and hear the booming of the snipe, to smell the whispering sedge where only some wilder and more solitary fowl builds her nest and the mink crawls with its belly close to the ground. This tonic of wildness feels like a tonic, kind of a healing tonic. And we've gotten pretty far away a lot of the time in our lives from wildness. Something internal and external that's a loss there, at least for me. read a little, uh, a few words from an author named Barry Lopez. These words were written during a time uh, he spent living among the Eskimo people in the far north, uh, very far up in, in uh, mostly in northern part of Alaska. We have irrevocably separated ourselves from the world that wild animals occupy. We've turned all animals and the elements of the natural world into objects. We manipulate them to serve the complicated ends of our destiny. Eskimos do not grasp this separation easily and have difficulty imagining themselves entirely removed from the world of animals. For many of them to make this separation is analogous to cutting oneself off from light or water. It is hard to imagine how to do it. This feels like cutting part of ourselves off, like severing part of ourselves, cutting it away. And we can learn to live with it. We have, we're so adaptable, but I question whether we really want to. This is from a, a writer named Rick Bass. If it's wild to your own heart, protect it, preserve it, love it, and fight for it, and dedicate yourself to it, whether it's a mountain range, your partner, or even, God forbid, your job. It doesn't matter if it's wild to anyone else, if it's what makes your heart sing, if it's what makes your days soar like a hawk in the summertime, then focus on it. Because for sure it's wild, and if it's wild, it'll mean you're still free, no matter where you are. And again from Barry Lopez. Would the last wild animal eating garbage and living on the last scrap of land, their mate dead, would they still forgive you?
And I realize it's, no, I feel like I, I take a chance in speaking to you this way tonight. And, and I know how sensitive we all are after so many weeks on retreat. And, and the last thing I would want is for anything I say to lead to feelings of anger or grief or despair. And so I hope, I really hope that you can hear that I speak from love and I'm speaking to myself as much as to anyone else who's here in the room this evening. And I'm speaking out of friendship and respect along with that love. And I decided to to begin this way because I want to also bring into the room, invoke, call back in the spirit of Hiri and Otapa that both Brian and Winnie have spoken about in the recent days. Hiri sometimes translated as, as uh, Brian said, as regret, or I think of it as some kind of something like wise remorse, perhaps. Otapa, maybe conscience or concern. And the Buddha called these qualities Sukha Lokapala. Sukha here, it's not the Sukha of happiness. Sukha spelled differently means bright. Lokapala, Loka's world, guardian of the world. Bright guardians of the world. This is uh, Sharon Salzberg speaking about them. What is really meant is a very beautiful and delicate sense of conscience. It's like an extreme sensitivity where something inside us just pulls back from harming or hurting. This is a beautiful movement born out of caring deeply for ourselves and others. A sense of conscience isn't the, conscience isn't the same as being moralistic or judging ourselves or others. Rather, it is developed through the process of having a commitment to care and compassion. And this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. By cultivating these qualities within ourselves, we not only accelerate our own progress along the path to deliverance, but also contribute our share toward the protection of the world given the intricate interconnections that hold between all living forms to make hiri and otapa the guardians of our own minds is to make ourselves guardians of the world. I think of these, these qualities as friends. I think of hiri and otapa as our, our good friends. as wise friends. Uh, One teacher refers to them as um, her spiritual friends. And friends, uh, in this way, they help us to pay attention and to see the way things really are. And, And they're friends who sometimes say difficult things to us because that's what a friend will do. And they say it because they care about us and they want to protect us. And above all, they want us to be whole.
So I have a new story for you tonight. Once long ago, at the time when Brahmadatta was king in Benares, an antelope was born into a herd of forest antelopes who made their home deep in the woods near a clear forest pool at the edge of a tranquil glade. This antelope, whose name was Kurungamiga, was no ordinary animal, for even when still quite young, they carried themselves with a natural grace and a noble bearing. For this was the Bodhisatta, the one who would become the Buddha. Their fur was a rich red gold color with subtle stripes of creamy white and a darker brown. Actually kind of a lot like the chipmunks around here. (laughs) Their hooves and nose shone like polished onyx. Their tongue was the color of a pink rose in the early spring. And their eyes sparkled like finely cut blue-black sapphires. Not far from this pool and deep in the forest, there lived a young flame-backed woodpecker named Satapatta. Satapatta's favorite pastime, other than pecking holes in tree bark and making noise, was to perch high up in the tops of the trees where she could see all around in every direction. And in the pool, there lived a pond terrapin, a turtle. His name was Kachapa. And he loved to nose about in the cool mud at the bottom of the pond and to sun himself on rocks or logs. And the three were very different in their temperament and, and in the way they lived in the world, in the forest. Gurungamiga, the antelope, preferred the grassy verges along the pond and uh, in the meadow there. And they would graze with other members of the herd and, and spoke in a, a slow kind of measured, not too slow, medium pace of voice, very sweet voice. Satipata liked to roam far and wide through the forest in search of dead and dying trees to peck at. She was really kind of hasty and quick in her speech. And she often repeated herself, especially when she got excited. And Kachapa, the turtle, he loved the cool depths of the pond and the mud down there. And he tended to speak very slowly. And mostly about mud and snails and, <laughs> and good times lounging in the sun. But despite, or maybe even because of these differences, these three became very close friends. And they could often be seen talking and playing on the shore of the pond, chasing one another along the paths in the forest. Although when Kachapa was doing the chasing, it went really slowly. (laughs) Those turtles are not famous for their speed. And one day during the summer, a hunter was wandering through the woods and search of game and saw a hoof print and saw that it was a hoof print of a forest antelope. And so uh, the hunter set a cunning snare along, right along the edge of the path there, was made of leather 
and it was light and very flexible, but it was strong as a band of steel. So he set the snare very carefully, hid it among the grasses there, and then went on his way in search of more game. And during the summertime, as this was that time of year, many of the forest creatures are are more active at nighttime because it's so warm during the day and the long days make the relative coolness of the nighttime very appealing. And so just after, at the end part of twilight, as the, the dark of night was starting to come in, Kurunga Miga went down to take a drink at the pond. And in the dim light, they didn't see the snare and stepped right into the noose. And it caught them fast about the ankle and when they pulled away, it just tightened and they were caught fast and held there. And Kurunga Miga gave a cry of fright and it carried through the wood like the sound of the barred owls around here at night. And Satipata was uh, woken by the sound and uh, was perched not far away and, and uh, shook out her feathers and having recognized the voice and flew to the flew towards where she'd heard the sound and landed in a tree. And looking down, she saw the Kurunga Miga was caught by the snare, unable to get free. And meanwhile, Kachapa, the turtle, also heard the cry, carried down into the water and pulled himself out of the mud where he'd gone to spend the night, swam to the surface and came over to the bank and crawled out. And and the three friends, spoke together and, and consulted what they might do about the situation. And Satapatta and Kachapa examined the leather noose and they, they determined it couldn't be removed. They couldn't undo it. So Satapatta spoke. Kachapa, Kachapa, Kachapa. Use your parrot-like beak and your sharp, sharp, sharp teeth. Bite and chew through this leather snare. Meanwhile, I will go see what I can do to keep the hunter away. If we both do our best, 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 our friend will not lose their life. Satipata was kind of excited. And to make this extra clear, she uttered this verse. Come, O Kachapa, tear the leather snare and bite it through and through. And of the hunter, I'll take care and keep him away from you. The Kachapa dug his feet into the dirt to get a, a, a good grip and get some traction and He had a sharp turtle's beak and sharp teeth. And he began to chew at the leather thong and Kurunga Miga spoke softly and gently to him, encouraging words. And meanwhile, Satipata flew to where she knew where the hunter's cabin was at the edge of the woods. And she perched in a tree just outside the front door. And so just as the summer days are long, the nights are short and And shortly after she had settled onto her perch near the cabin, the dawn just started to pale in the eastern sky. The first hints of light were coming. And and then as she sat, the sun came up and a beam of sunlight uh, shone through one of the windows in the cabin and woke the hunter up. The sunlight hit him right in the eyes. And, And it happened that this was a Friday Friday morning, and it was an egg and bagel day. (laughs) 
for the hunter. And so he leaned back. He was wakened by the sun, but he leaned back in his bed and just lay back comfortably and these images of perfectly toasted sesame bagels with melting butter, cream cheese, apricot jam. It just floated through his mind. And then at a certain point, he just couldn't take it any longer. And he got up and got dressed, put the kettle on to boil and began to set his table. And Meanwhile, from her perch on the tree outside the cabin, Satapata had a good view into the, through the window, the interior of the cabin. And so she saw the hunter getting up and, and she was so fascinated. She watched him put his bagel in the toaster and then she shook out her feathers and raised her crest to kind of come back to herself. She was so fascinated by what he was doing. And she thought about a plan that she could delay his departure. So she continued to watch the hunter prepared his breakfast. And then he began to collect the, the tools of his trade. So he had a, a leather pouch and a hunter's knife. And he sat down and started to lace up his boots. And Satipata was observing this, all this carefully from her perch on the tree outside the cabin. And she, um, she dropped down to a, a perch uh, on a tree very close to the front door. And just as the hunter stepped outside, opened the door to step outside, she flew down and with a loud screech and she flapped her wings really hard right in his face. Some bird of ill omen has struck me, thought the hunter. And he turned around, went back into the cabin. And he laid back down to think things over and kind of gather his composure. And then after a while, he got up again and he got his pouch and his, his knife and getting ready to go out again. Meanwhile, Satipata reasoned with herself. She thought the first time the hunter went out by the front door, now he will most certainly leave by the back door. I must be ready. So she flew around to a perch just outside the back door and waited there. And the hunter did follow this exact reasoning. He thought, when I went out by the front door, I saw a bad omen and was struck in the face. Now I'll go out by the back door and avoid any further troubles. But Satipata was waiting right there. She again flew down, crying out with a loud screech and flapped her wings in his face. The hunter cried out and said, thought to himself, this creature will not let me go out. So he went back inside again and lay down another time, trying to decide what to do. And then finally, after a while, he got back up and decided to make himself a nice cup of tea. He'd, he'd gotten the impression from some of the shows he'd been streaming on Netflix <laughs> that this was pretty much a cure for anything that ailed you, a good cup of tea. Meanwhile, the woodpecker had been keeping watch outside the window. He realized she probably wasn't going to be able to deter the hunter indefinitely. And it turned out she was right, because after finishing his tea, the hunter seized an umbrella from a stand by the door, gathered his pouch and his knife, and set out again. He had the umbrella for protection, so Satipata flew back to her friends, and she spoke. The hunter is coming, coming, coming. I could delay him no longer. How's it going? Kachapa, kachapa. 
Kachapa, who had been steadily gnawing away at the leather noose, the snare, gazed up with weary bloodshot eyes and managed to chew all the way through except for one last strand of the leather. His teeth felt as though they were going to fall out. His mouth and his sharp beak were smeared with blood from chewing for hours. And he was so tired he could hardly stand any longer. And then the three friends heard the hunter coming through the woods. And they saw him approaching along the path, his umbrella in one hand, hunting knife in the other. And with a mighty tug, Kurungamiga snapped the remaining cord of leather and fled into the thicket and Satapata flew to a perch high above. But Kachapa was so weak from his efforts, he couldn't really move. And so the hunter came along and he was easy prey and the hunter picked him up and stuffed him into his pouch, determined that he wasn't going to lose out completely. At least he'd get the turtle. And then he hung the pouch from a a low branch on a tree and bent down to, you know, salvage what he could of the noose and the snare and muttered to himself about tricky birds and antelopes. And looking out from their hiding place in the thicket, Kurungamiga saw that Kachapa had been taken and determined that they would try to save their friend's life. And so uh, Kurungamiga came limping out from the thicket, pretending to be injured and came into the view of the hunter, and the hunter saw the antelope, thinking that they must be lame, hoping his luck had changed, grabbed his knife and set out in pursuit. And so keeping just within sight, but out of reach, Kurunga Miga started to lead him along the forest paths and then through the brush and finally through these dense thickets that were full of uh, thorny shrubs and vines and got him pretty thoroughly lost least confused. And then uh, they gave the hunter the slip. Kurungamiga uh, returned back to where poor Kachapa lay, uh, was uh, trapped in the pouch hanging from the tree. And, and uh, Kurungamiga was able to lift the pouch off and carefully rip it open and uh, set Kachapa free. And Satapata flew down and they Friends rejoiced together, and then Kurungamiga spoke. Truer friends there cannot be, for I have saved you, and you have saved me. Before the hunter returns with knife and snare, take you, dear friends, to water and air. We meet and meet again, we shall end soon, for friendship like this is indeed a boon. And so Kachapa dove into the pond and swam down to rest and heal in the cool mud. And Satapata flew away through the trees and Kurungamiga slipped away into the woods. And a little later, the hunter, tired and scratched up from picking his way out of the thorny thickets, came back and he found his torn leather pouch and the little bits of the leather thong laying around and he gathered them up and dejected when he made his way home vowing in the future he would check very carefully for birds before he went out and he would avoid messing around with such good friends. And so the three friends did meet again often and they lived their lives together in mutual uh, support and camaraderie 
through days that were difficult and days that were good and easy until each passed away to fare on according to their deeds. The end. These are the words of the Buddha. Bhikkhus, a friend endowed with seven qualities is worth associating with. Which seven? They give what is hard to give. They do what is hard to do. They endure what is hard to endure. They reveal their secrets to you and they keep your secrets. When misfortune strikes, they don't abandon you. When you're down and out, they don't look down on you. A friend endowed with these seven qualities is worth associating with. This teaching ends with uh, kind of a verse. They give what is beautiful, hard to give, do what is hard to do, endure painful and ill-spoken words. Their secrets they tell you, your secrets they keep. When misfortunes strike, they don't abandon you. When you're down and out, don't look down on you. A person in whom these traits are found is a friend to be cultivated by anyone wanting a friend. There seemed to be kind of an eighth quality in the first part, the second part. It says they give what is beautiful. It wasn't in the first first part. Maybe that's included in what is hard to give, hard to do. But I thought of this sense of, of giving what is beautiful, just maybe just the gift of being a friend is, that's so beautiful. Or maybe the gift of friendship itself is the gift of something beautiful. And I was thinking about this when I read this verse, I was reminded of a time not that long ago and I had gone to the grocery store to do some shopping with a friend and and I finished before my friend and I was waiting. And and I could have felt impatient or restless waiting. But what I felt and noticed uh, was that I just came into my mind that it was a wonderful thing to have a friend to be waiting for. Sometimes we take friendship for granted a little bit, maybe. I don't know if we think about (coughs) the quality of friendship as a gift that we can offer. Some of those qualities or characteristics of a friend from that list of, of the Buddhas are things that maybe when I read the list, they seem obvious qualities or things that we would associate with, with friendship, with being a good friend. You know, the sense that we would go out of our way, we would be there even when it's not easy or, or so convenient for us or doesn't suit our, our mood or schedule or we might feel like it would be tiring or taxing. You know, if our friend was doing something um, that might be, we could see was was unskillful or or might even be harmful for themselves, to themselves, or to someone else. You know, 
It's going to be hard to speak up. Would we speak up then? Or would our friends speak up? Would they feel enough uh, trust that they would be able to speak up to us? You know, it can be challenging to say uh, what's difficult to a friend. You know, would we suffer an indignity for a friend? Do we have the sense that our friend might, might do that for us? Or would we put our own safety on the line? Would they do this for us? That sense of being trustworthy. Are we trustworthy? Or is our friend trustworthy? Could we confide in our friend or our friend confide in us, tell their secrets? Speak in confidence without fear that it would get repeated somewhere else. And do we stick around when misfortune strikes? Do our friends stick around and not abandon us? What if we were down and out? What if our friend is down and out? Would we stay there? Would we stay present? Would we be able to be connected and and not withdraw from that energetically? To me, this comes around, connects to this uh, quality of compassion that was uh, spoken about in, in uh, when Sharon was talking about hiri and otapa, conscience concern, and the sense of those as friends, and compassion uh, being uh, what gives rise to these things, really this deep caring. And, and this is maybe one of the real hallmarks of friendship, real friendship, because it's not easy to stick with someone when misfortune strikes to stay there and connected when someone's down and out. I think sometimes there's almost an instinctive pulling away at those times. You know, to, to pull away when someone feels like they're in a weak or needful state. As though too closely, too close of an association would bring us, somehow weaken us, or we'd be seen that way. And so it takes maybe a certain kind of extra strength and, and real uh, connection to the heart of compassion to be able to empathize when misfortune strikes and to, to realize and remember that this could so easily be us. You know, one little shift and, and that circumstance could befall us. And so we will stay and not abandon someone in their time of, of need. In this tradition, there's uh, friendship is valued and spoken about one way in terms of uh, wise friendship that's seen as directly related to our progress on the path. There's this uh, term, kalyana mitata, spiritual or wise friendship. Kalyana mitta, mitta means friend as a wise or virtuous or noble or admirable, a lot of different words. Friend, I think others have spoken about this. And since at least the time of the Buddha, this uh, kind of spiritual friendship has been seen and held and valued and spoken about and seen in terms of the relationship between a teacher and, and their student and also the relationship between peers our friends along the path. And in either case, the relationship is understood and seen as uh, being based on 
shared ethical values and um, this sense of movement uh, in the direction of awakening and liberation, sort of oriented around that. And one teaching the Buddha said, with regard to external factors, I don't envision any other single factor like admirable friendship as doing so much for a person in training who has not attained the heart's goal, but remains intent on the unsurpassed safety from bondage. One who is a friend with admirable people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. And in another place uh, in the Samyutta Nikaya, he said, just as dawn is the forerunner, the harbinger of the arising of the sun, so friendship with good people is the forerunner, the harbinger of the arising of the noble eightfold path. So it's the sign of that. It, it's there and gives rise to this direct movement to awakening. I know that one of us, uh, maybe kind of recently even, uh, mentioned the famous time when the Buddha is talking to uh, Ananda. And Ananda said, um, spoke about how wise friendship, this wise uh, spiritual friendship is half of the holy life. And the Buddha says, don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. It's uh, good friendship, admirable companionship, wise camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. And again, reiterating this uh, connection uh, with the, the path, he said, when a practitioner has good, admirable, wise people as friends, as companions, as comrades, they can be expected to develop and pursue the noble eightfold path. And such a valuing of that. I think it was Winnie who uh, talk, talked about um, the great friendship that's developed over the years between uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And someone, I was reading an article, someone described their friendship as being rooted in a shared sense of joy and of purpose to foster and spread that joy around the globe in order to address and counter despair. And this idea of actually, I don't think it's intentional perhaps, but there's this sense, but maybe it is. I think they, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama probably does a lot of things intentionally. (laughs) I think he knows what he's up to. But they use their, their friendship just through direct exchanges and and letting that be seen and witnessed and observed as a kind of teaching tool. I think it's such a skillful and beautiful thing to do that, you know, to embody it that way, so so direct. So I want to just read a little bit. This is part of an exchange between the two. It was at an event where uh, they hadn't seen each other for a while. And, and, uh, in the as reading this, it was clear that they had been uh, teasing one another, affectionately kind of teasing one another as part of saying hello. 
but it was it was an event where they were, they were being filmed and a lot of people were there to watch this, um, watch them just being friends. <laughs> That's an interesting thing. Put yourself up. Maybe I'll see if one of my colleagues would be willing to be my friend. <laughs> Dara would, I bet. Will you be my friend, Dara? You just, you just made my day. <laughs> okay, so they're they're sitting together, teasing one another. And the Dalai Lama began pointing at at Desmond Tutu. He said, "His face, his face," and gesturing to uh, his his whole uh, whole head, which was uh, completely bald at that time. He looks like a monk now, doesn't he? And then the Dalai Lama drew his hand in the shape of an eye. When I see your eyes, and then he squeezed his nose playfully, and of course your nose. Said the archbishop uh, was giggling at the mention of his nose. And then the Dalai Lama's playful tone changed. Someone who was uh, there wrote this. He pointed at uh, the archbishop's face warmly. This picture, this special picture, then he paused. I think at the time of my death, and the person who was there watching said, it seemed like the word death hung in the air, almost like a prophecy. I think at the time of my death, I will remember you. And the person who was writing said, I could hear everyone, even the camera operators in the room, kind of take a, a, a breath in. The archbishop looked down and hummed deeply, obviously humbled and moved by the Dalai Lama's words. Could there be a truer sign of love to see another's face at the time of death? Thank you, thank you, was all the archbishop could say, maybe all that could be said. So perhaps, the Dalai Lama said, according to your religious tradition, we may meet in heaven, in the presence of God. You are a good Christian practitioner, so you go first. (laughs) The archbishop now chuckled heartily and the room seemed to breathe again. The Dalai Lama said, you may help me and bring us together. The person writing said, we all laughed, imagining the archbishop bargaining with St. Peter at the pearly gates, trying to get special admission for the Dalai Lama. (laughs) He's really a good guy, let him in. But from the Buddhist viewpoint, the Dalai Lama continued, once in a life, you develop some sort of special close connection, then that sort of impact will carry life after life. That's Buddhist viewpoint. So maybe even then. But now I'm looking forward to another occasion to see you again, somewhere only that only God knows. This, this support of friends and so beautifully uh, kind of demonstrated to me at least in that exchange, whether they're peers or teachers that we might have is really, I think, essential, critical to us on the path. And, and then the lightness and joy that was expressed in that exchange. 
points to one essential aspect of friendship is this ability to uplift our heart and to turn our hearts towards joy. And of course, in the long run, the best friendship we can develop is friendship with our own heart and mind, befriending ourselves. This is a little uh, excerpt from an article by a teacher named, uh, Tibetan teacher, Karma Yeshe Rabye. What is befriending yourself? It is a practice whereby we can have compassion for ourselves. We understand that we are going to make mistakes And when we do, instead of berating ourselves, we are kind and caring. We don't look to blame ourselves or others. We just understand that this is life and we learn from our mistakes and we move on. We view our situation in a mindful way. This allows us to accept whatever we are going through without judgment. We're not suppressing or exaggerating the situation. We're just viewing it through compassionate, caring eyes. The more we are able to open up to our human condition, the more we are able to have compassion for ourselves and then for others. If we do not have compassion for ourselves, how can we have real compassion for others? We cannot give what we don't have. So become your own best friend and stop fighting this imperfect world. Maybe even on an even deeper level, what we see, what I have seen so profoundly in my own life is that our own mind and heart become our good, our true, and eventually our best friend. Just as a natural consequence of developing this path, of developing the practice and the the purification of mind that comes through that, And as the practice unfolds, the energies of uh, the kilesas, the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, they're just naturally weakened, attenuated, lessened. And ultimately, they'll be completely uh, removed, you could say. They'll just fall away. They fall away in moments as it is, don't they? And through this process over time, Will we discover that our own mind and heart has become our best friend all by itself. <clears throat> I think it was year before last, sometime recently, I was uh, on retreat at Spirit Rock for two months. I think I know at least one person in the hall was there. Was, we shared a yogi job, but others might have been there. Was it year before last? I think so. 2017. And uh, there was a place I liked to do my walking meditation. It was up on a, the side of a, a slope above the meditation hall there, and kind of a nice long flat place. And and uh, I liked to walk there in the in the later part of the afternoon. And for, for a few weeks, there were um, some... Uh, golden crowned sparrows who would come and feed on the side of the hill near the path. And um, and a lot of birds do have kind of um, places they like to go at certain times of day. So it might have been the same ones. I thought they were the same ones. 
they were there every day around the same time they'd come in, be three or four of them. And uh, I would, um, they were my friends. And I would uh, greet them and, and uh, you know, admonish them to be careful and the things one might say to a friend. And golden crown sparrows are fine, fine birds. They're very friendly birds. And then, then they weren't coming around for, at a certain point I didn't see them and I missed them. And so I was doing my walking meditation and, and there was a bush and I asked the bush if it would be my friend because some of the birds weren't there and the bush said yes. And I know, you know, talking to bushes is not maybe a little bit suspicious, but it was okay. It was okay for me to speak to my bush and it, it was, wasn't my bush, it was its own bush, but it said it would be my friend. But then I was walking and I asked myself if I would be my friend. And I said, I will always be your friend. <clears throat> and that was not something I would always have said to myself. And earlier in my life, I would never have said that. So that just happened somehow. So I'll end this evening with a poem that I think one of us uh, read already. It's from our friend uh, Matty Weingast's uh, collection of uh, translations and, and um, I could say um, his sort of versions of some of the poems of the early nuns of the Terigata. And this poem was is by uh, a nun named Mitta. Mitta means friend. It would be a great name to have, a Pali name, Mitta. And uh, I want to share it again because it captures the spirit of friendship uh, along our, our path so beautifully. So this is Mit a poem by Mitta, a version of her poem. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.